You are Locked On Rockets, your daily Houston Rockets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me on another episode of Locked on Rockets. I am your new host, Jackson Gatlin, at JT Gatlin on Twitter, producer with Sports Talk 790, the team's official radio flagship here in Houston. Today, I am joined by none other than the man, the myth, the legend, our special correspondent, Mr. Ben DuBose. How are you doing today, Ben? Doing well, Jackson, and glad to be back. You know, I've been asked on Twitter, you know, did you leave? I'm like, well, I don't have time to do it daily anymore, but... I wouldn't call it a departure. I'm definitely still involved and look forward to doing this more, hopefully, in the next few weeks. Oh, definitely. For those of you that can't tell, Ben is very much behind the scenes, helping me, kind of coaching me along the way, giving his input, and he's here today as our special correspondent. How does it feel to sit on the, I guess, the other side of the microphone, so to speak? Uh, A little bit of a relief that I don't have to edit it after it's done. Yeah, that's all Uh, on me. Yeah, congratulations. That's your... uh... That comes with the territory, but you, you know you'll ease into it the same way I did, and I definitely want to stay involved. Like this is the fun part of it for me because it's still an outlet that I can use to communicate with Rockets fans. I don't want to go anywhere. I just don't know if I can do it every day again now that I have the new USA Today gig. But definitely want to stay involved, and definitely plan on doing this. I'd say you know at least once a week. We had a little bit of a gap of about a week and a half, in part because of well, number one, the Astros. Number two, as anybody knows on Twitter, my. Um, dog journey of the last couple of weeks with Texas A&M. Definitely. But fortunately, all of that is resolved. The Rockets are less than two weeks away from the season. And so now we're getting back into a new routine here at Lockdown Rockets, in which I'll be on at least once a week with you, Jackson, to break down everything that's going on with the team. Definitely. And I look forward to that. We're going to have a lot of guests on the show, Ben, at least once a week, and I'll be finding some rotating guests here and there. But right now, I think that Even though I addressed it a little bit in the last pod, I want to go ahead and touch base again on what has been, I guess we can call it, do we want to call it Twittergate, Chinagate, (laughs) the Daryl Morey saga that has impacted the Rockets and the NBA at large so far. What are are your thoughts on this, Ben? Yeah, and I'm glad to finally have a platform for this. I know you touched on it Tuesday, but this is one, you know, now that I'm on the other side of the equation, more in publishing You know, now that I'm with USA Today, I look at the click numbers, and some of them are just staggering how much interest this has, you know, not not just in Houston, but around the NBA. So it's one of those things, even though it's the elephant in the room, and a lot of us here in Houston, we're probably a little bit sick of it at this point. At the same time, it definitely is a big storyline, and it did start with Rockets GM Gerald Morey. Now, it's expanded beyond the Rockets a little bit in recent days. But I think just to kind of wrap up what I think we've learned over the past week, and it's almost been a week, you know, it was... 10 p.m. last Friday night here in Houston when all of this started, and we're recording Friday afternoon. And thankfully, it seems to be calming down some. There was a report from the New York Times yesterday that China had asked its uh, journalist partners to kind of tamp down the rhetoric a little bit. But I think overall, the impact is still going to be to be determined. But I think the key takeaways, number one, in hindsight, I know Tillman Fertitta has his critics around here. He's new. He's a lightning rod criticism with a lot of the Rockets fan base. But this is something where his original tweet at like 11 p.m. Friday night, that seems so jarring. I think at this point, we have to understand that he got that right. That was not a misstep. On Saturday, there were a lot of folks I saw that were wondering, you know, did he gaslight it? Would this have been a thing if Tillman said nothing? 
And when you see how much this escalated and how quickly, I think even if you don't agree with it, regardless of whether someone says anything, this was going to be a big deal. The Chinese journalist here in Houston that's covered the Rockets for a number of years, he pointed out 54 minutes before Tillman tweeted on Friday night, his quote from Twitter, this is going to be an earthquake. So I understand where, you know, Tillman, he has all these media interviews and it's easy to criticize him and always had the book tour. This is one in which I don't think he made a mistake. This was always going to be a big deal and he was just trying to shield the organization from the fallout as best he could. As far as Daryl, I think at the end of the day, he's certainly a part of the story because he's the one who tweeted that image with seven words or whatever it was about. But it could have been it could have been anybody, yes. right? It was a powder keg waiting to go off. Yes, exactly. That's the big takeaway. And I think ultimately that's what's going to shield the Rockets. Number one, even though the backlash was initially at the Rockets, now that you know they've expanded it to the NBA after Silver uh, Adam Silver defended Maury's right to freedom of expression, that's going to impact other teams too. Now, it still might impact the Rockets a little bit more because they have more Chinese revenues, but at least it tamps down the differential a little bit. But the other thing, you, you hit the nail right on the head. If it wasn't Daryl, it would have been someone else. Actually, I saw someone today pointed out that Steve Kerr, who, you know, Steve Kerr's getting dragged this week for his neutral statements, all that stuff. A month or two ago, I, it was July, he retweeted something about uh, the rising in Hong Kong and basically rejecting authoritarianism. But it was a retweet, and it also referenced two other locations, so it didn't, you know, become the storyline it did in this case because Daryl was a lot more explicit but the point is, this was always going to be a story. It just was a matter of who was the one to explicitly say it. And I guess you can say that Daryl, with it being a team that the Chinese market has grown accustomed to, Daryl had a relationship with Yao Ming, I guess that escalated it slightly more quickly in that, you know, within 24 hours or so, you started seeing these sponsors, these businesses pull out. But if it wasn't Daryl, it was going to be somebody else. It always was. And so I think that's why, you know, now it's gone beyond the Rockets to the NBA as a whole. And so that's why I think cooler heads have prevailed. You know, I've been told by the Rockets that Daryl's safe, that there was never any thought of moving on from him. And they've told other people that too. I'm not sure if I 100% believe that because, you know, the Ringer report on Sunday, when everything started coming fast and furious, you know, the Ringer CEO is Bill Simmons, who we know has a relationship with Maury. I don't think it came out of thin air. I think there was probably a few hours where, be it at the NBA level, the Rockets level, there was a lot of panic. People didn't know what was going to happen. And maybe there was a scenario where Daryl could have been thrown under the bus. But I think, you know, it started the the media, the fans, even politicians. It made it pretty clear that uh, scapegoating Daryl Maury would not be tolerated. And then, you know, after taking a day or two to kind of gain perspective, I think that's where everyone started to realize that, hey, if it wasn't Daryl, it was going to be somebody else because the bottom line is in the United States, this isn't even this isn't even really like a Democrat versus Republican type issue where, you know, 50 percent of people think one thing and 50 percent think another. No, the pretty mainstream position in all of this is on the side of what Daryl said. And it's just going to be a matter of, you know, are the interest in China OK with agreeing to disagree or are they going to, you know, take their ball and go home, so to speak? And while that's, you know, time will tell as far as how serious they are about their their backlash, their boycott, what I think is becoming into focus is that pretty clearly it could have been anyone else. It just happened to be Daryl. And so because of that, it would be pretty silly if you're the Rockets through the NBA to treat Daryl any differently when, again, it could have been anyone else. It could have been, you know, a tweet, a retweet, a podcast comment. It could have been anybody else. So as far as I'm concerned, you, you know, Time will tell. It's going to be a story of weeks, if not months, in terms of exactly who and for how long is willing to pull out as far as these Chinese business interests. But as far as the Rockets in particular, yeah, they'll always be linked to it because, you know, they've had Chinese revenues and their GM was the one. Who started it. Yeah, who lit the match on this. 
But as far as the impact, you know, I think now that we're weekend, we can transition from this being really a Rockets in China story to what is now an NBA in China story. Obviously, and I gave this disclaimer on the last podcast, but this is not a political podcast. But this event very much incorporates the Houston Rockets and the NBA as a whole. And so it has to be addressed. You know, it's we don't want to sit here and talk politics. But at the end of the day, this very much involves the Houston Rockets. The GM started it, Daryl Morey. And now, you know, it's escalated to such a point that after a pair of kind of questionable tweets i don't know if you saw that from the nba front office where there was one tweet that i guess was written in english and another tweet written in mandarin and they had very different uh what do we want to call it they had very different hmm, interpretations meanings yeah yeah what was said in english did not really translate all that accurately to what was said according to people who translated it now obviously i don't speak the other languages but yeah um Yes, and that was a big part of the discrepancy and why Adam Silver came out Tuesday, issued the stronger statement, and in that backed Gerald Morey's freedom of expression rights. And at that point, the Chinese government pushed back basically saying, no, we don't believe that he does have freedom of expression if it threatens, I believe it was uh, state sovereignty or however they phrased it. That is, I think that's exactly how they phrased it. Yeah. And so. I mean, at the end of it, though, I'm I'm still a little shocked at how strongly Adam Silver came out on Tuesday. Because And part of that is because of how it seemed the NBA was trying to handle things with the tweets that they were sending out, kind of the stance that they were taking originally. I was fully I, – I was embracing the possibility that Daryl Morey was going to have to fall on his yeah. sword and be fired and be the scapegoat for this. And then to have Adam Silver come out and like lots of Rockets fans who were up at yep. 4.30 in the morning on Tuesday ready to watch the game – Adam Silver comes out, does his press conference, and says, we will not censor our employees' free speech. Yep. We stand with, you know, we, we apologize for how fans of the NBA have interpreted this, but we do not believe in censoring free speech. And that was, to me, very impressive. Yep, it was a big deal, and that's when it transferred from a Rockets story to an NBA story. And so while, it, you know, as I said, it's going to be around for a few more weeks, probably longer than that. At this point, it's not really a rocket-centric issue anymore, so kudos to Adam Silver. He took the heat, and of course, when the Chinese government pushed back, their statement wasn't even about Daryl Morey. It was about Adam Silver defending that freedom of expression right in the context. And so as far as Daryl is concerned, I think that's a very positive development in helping him and the Rockets move past that. The last thing I'll say on it, and this is just the NBA as a whole, I thought they played this beautifully in terms of they didn't want to be too strong in terms of pulling their games, the Lakers and the Nets, the two preseason games in China this week, uh, that would have made it, I don't know, that would have seemed like they were cutting ties. And I think the perfect result from this, I mean, the NBA would love to keep the Chinese revenues and just simply have an understanding that not everything is going to uh, be on the same page at all times. You know, these are two very different cultures. These are very two different geographies, uh, groups of citizens. And it's not really realistic to think that everybody's going to be aligned at all times. And to some degree, you just have to be okay with that. And so rather than the NBA pull out entirely, you know, there's a lot of Chinese fans that love basketball. In a perfect world, you know, we can just realize that, hey, there's a lot of cultural differences here and we can move on. And as Silver said, you know, make basketball the unifying force. And by the NBA not pulling out, what ended up happening here, and I think China also didn't want to cancel the games because then it would have been clear on the world stage that they were – you know, basically uh, my way or the highway forcing it. So you kind of had this uncomfortable dynamic in which they're taking down all these NBA signs in China. They were doing all these things. And yet with the games going on, 
despite all the, the signs being taken down, despite all the controversy, the game going on and then being filled with fans, that was a beautiful move by Adam Silver and the NBA because what that does, it shows that there's still a big chunk of the population over there that appreciates the NBA product and even after all of this is out in the open, still wants to support the NBA and watch this game. Now, exactly what percentage is that? I don't know. Time will tell. I don't think anyone's done a uh, a poll of China yet, and I think that's pretty difficult to do with like 1.4 uh, billion people. Yeah, that might take a little time. Yeah, uh, and we haven't had that much. But I think at this point, by playing those games and having the fans actively involved and there, you know, it shows you that, again, I don't know the exact percentages, but yes, there's absolutely, even after all of this is on the table, everything is known, there's still a significant chunk. How much? I don't know, but there's still a significant chunk of people in China who are willing to even if they do disagree, to you know move past it and say, hey, this is not going to affect the NBA, and thus they can con- continue to be fans, and the NBA can, you know, monetarily benefit from that the same way the Rockets and many other teams have for the last you know twenty years or so. So, again, time will tell exactly how it plays out. But I think the NBA, beyond just again Silver stepping in and his statement was big in letting everyone move past Daryl Morey and making this more about the NBA in China than the Rockets in China, and then I think the NBA as a whole playing these games. It's been really great because it totally undercuts the position that the Chinese government put out initially, which was basically, oh, you know, we're not banning this because, you know, it's just what the fans want. No, there's a lot of fans that want the NBA product, too. And, you know, will they win out? I don't know. That's something, again, weeks, months will tell. And hopefully for the sake of the Rockets and the NBA, you know, it'd be great if the revenue streams aren't interrupted all that much because, you know, that's a big part of how all these players are given the contracts that they are. And I think in Houston, it's been a competitive advantage. But at the very least, I think the NBA... It's still a bad week, but it could have been a lot worse. They played it relatively well. And then as far as the Rockets, the impact, especially from a competitive disadvantage standpoint to the rest of the NBA, I'm not going to say it's nothing, but it's nowhere near as terrifying as it was on a Sunday or Monday. We, I think we can leave it at that. Now, bringing things back to basketball, which is what this podcast is about, it's about Houston Rockets basketball, your daily podcast home for Houston Rockets basketball. There's kind of a big story going on there. Russell Westbrook has played his first couple games as a Houston Rocket. What are your initial thoughts, Ben? I've been very encouraged. And, you know, it's funny because you would think that, you know, Russell missed his first two games of the preseason, still rehabbing that offseason knee scope that he had in May. It's the knee that he's had on and off trouble with, although it hasn't cost him too many regular season games, especially the last four years. That goes back to the whole Pat Beverly incident in the 2013 playoffs and You know, he missed his first two games, debuts in Japan. You'd expect that to be a huge storyline, and I guess it was. It's just everything is somewhat dwarfed by the whole China controversy, everything that's been happening the last few days on an executive front. But as far as the team is concerned, and I think that's why, you know, on Thursday, the Rockets got in that little flap with turning down a question about the China thing. Well, no, I think they want a lot of coverage about the team because this is a big deal. Russell Westbrook is playing basketball for the first time in a Houston Rockets uniform, and in my opinion— He's looked pretty good. You know, I looked up the stats, the two games. He's played just over 22 minutes a game, and he's averaging 17.5 points and five assists per game. That's pretty solid. I mean, you're scoring, uh, you know, close to 18 a game in less than 25 minutes. I mean, that's a pretty strong debut, and 22 and 25 minutes, and the win on Thursday, he started, we saw in the second half, uh, aggressively attacking the bucket a little bit more. To me, that's been most calming to me is that he still seems to have that burst. You know, anytime you see a guy, not that he's old, but now he's 30, he's played in the league. I think this is his his 11th season. 
and he had the offseason knee scope. You know, you wonder, is this the year that his athleticism starts to fade a little bit? Especially a guy who relies on his athleticism as much as Russell Westbrook does. Because that is traditionally around that 30 to maybe 32, 33-year-old mark where you do start to lose that first step a little bit. It's it's apparent. I mean, we saw it a little bit with Chris Paul, you know, lost his first step. And Father Time eventually will get the best of a player. But it doesn't seem, at least right now, that that's happening with Russell Westbrook. No, not at all, and especially that second game. You know, I think the first one, there's a little bit of a feeling-out process. Your first time on the court, maybe some nerves because of the new partnership between Westbrook and Harden. But I think that second game, you know, especially early in the fourth quarter, seeing him aggressively attack the rim and explode off of that knee. You know, it's one thing to run up and down the court in transition. That's what he's always done. But then to have the burst to kind of finish through traffic, the power, that's quintessential Russell Westbrook. That's when he's at his best. That's when he's, you know, an MVP and a future Hall of Famer. That's what the Rockets wanted when they traded for him. And, you know, it's a small sample thus far, but I've been largely encouraged. Now, there's a few things. You know, he shot 3 of 11 from 3 on Thursday. You don't want Russell Westbrook to take 11 threes in a game. He also, I think he's averaging like 2.5 boards per game. Again, this guy who's averaged a triple-double, meaning 10-plus rebounds each of the last three years. Well, again, somebody looked it up, and or I think he's actually averaging 3 rebounds per game. Or when I said 2.5, what I was thinking, somebody looked up the data the last two preseasons, He's also averaged two and a half rebounds per game. That's where that figure came from. So the fact is, a lot of this stuff, you know, the excessive threes, not being as active in terms of rebounding, it's because it's the preseason. And it's true with any NBA player, especially a star. They're not going to try and, you know, go full throttle and push the envelope and risk injury, especially someone that's as physical and powerful as Russell Westbrook is in a preseason game. So in terms of, the 11 threes and not being that aggressive on the glass. I think that just comes with the territory of, in his case, rehabbing and just overall being a star and what amounts to, you know, an exhibition. What you want to see, you're not going to see every minute of every game, you know, this God mode, this 2017 MVP version. You just want to see glimpses that athletically that player is still there. And then, you know, you hope just like any player that once the calendar turns to the regular season, the Rockets debut on Thursday, the 24th against the Bucks. That they're ready to go. And, you know, as far as I've seen from Russell, he still has that burst. And that's far and away the biggest thing. You know, you got a guy in his 30s. He's now played, you know, 10-plus NBA seasons. He had a knee scope. You always wonder in the back of your mind, you know, is this the year that he starts to go? And I think we've seen enough glimpses that he's still got the burst of the old Russ. And I think that's far and away the biggest storyline. And speaking of kind of these glimpses, these uh, previews into the future of what this is going to be like with Russell Westbrook, I've been very strongly encouraged by his early chemistry with Clint Capella. It seems apparent that he and Capella are very much on the same page. They understand, you know, and this is this is a chemistry that I don't think Chris Paul ever really developed with Clint Capella for whatever that reason may be, which I kind of touched base on this in the last pod. But I want to re up on it because I think it's important in Mike D'Antoni's system when you've got ball handlers, wings and rim runners, you know, Clint Capella is a rim runner and you've got ball handlers in. Russell Westbrook and James Harden, it's imperative that the ball handler has to be a threat to not only facilitate the ball, but also score their own points. And for Russell Westbrook, he is very much a threat to score himself as he is to facilitate the ball to, you know, a three-point shooter, to Clint Capella, who's rolling hard to the rim. Whereas Chris Paul, as he was aging and as he was losing a step, not able to beat his man as as easily as he could before— he became less of a threat to score and therefore less of a threat to be able to facilitate to his rim runner in Clint Capella, which is why I think that chemistry never truly developed between those two. What are your thoughts on that? 
I have a very similar theory. I mean, at the root level, when you have these alley-oops with guys like Clint Capella, the most basic way that this happens is if the help defender feels compelled to stop the ball handler on the drive. And I just think with Chris Paul being as small as he is and also having kind of diminished athleticism, not having the leaping ability, I just don't think that people really feared when Chris Paul was coming down the lane his ability to finish. I think they were okay forcing him into that teardrop because, of course, he's not really all that springy anymore. He doesn't have a lot of height. They can still kind of contest it anyway. And they didn't feel like they had to totally commit to take away Chris on the drive. Whereas, whereas with Russell, even though I don't think anyone's going to say that Russell Westbrook is a better passer than Chris Paul, that would be silly considering Chris Paul's probably the second best point guard in the history of the NBA. The reality is that in this situation, in this offense, you fear Russell Westbrook coming downhill if you are, you know, a help defender a lot more than you do when it's Chris Paul. And so then, you know, you have Clint Capella in that dunker slot. It's going to get him more opportunities. And so, yeah, I think it's relieving to see those synergies early on, but I also think it makes sense. That's kind of been my pet theory is that, you know, even though on paper, you know, you say, hey, Chris Paul's this great passer and Clint Capella, we know what he can do as the role man, as a finisher with James Harden. I just don't think the dynamic was the same between Paul and Capella as it was between Harden and Capella because no one really feared Chris Paul, the finisher, the way they did James Harden and the way now they do Russell Westbrook. So I think we're on the same page. The one downside I would say to Westbrook and the way he's played, it's not so much Westbrook. I would say overall, it's been the team as a whole adjusting to Russell Westbrook even before he got his uh, debut this week. You know, everyone is playing at a faster pace. We all agree that to optimize Russell Westbrook, you can't play the same offense as last year. And so that's why even the first two preseason games, James Harden, Eric Gordon, Austin Rivers, whoever it is that's the primary ball handler, they're pushing it up the floor. And all of that's good, and it's only accelerated even more now that you have Westbrook and he's trying to play to his strengths. And all of that is good on the offensive end of the floor. The downside, especially against Toronto, and even though they lost Kawhi, these are the defending NBA champions. They're a very good team. They're likely to make the playoffs again you have seen a pretty leaky transition defense. And I think that's going to be the one real challenge, not just for Westbrook, but the entire team, certainly Russell among them, but adjusting to Westbrook style. And, you know, it's the preseason. And so it's the time to kind of work out a lot of those kinks. But to me, transition defense, that's the one thing, you know, you want to push the, the pace on offense. And they're doing that much more than this past year. But then when, you, when you're successful in pushing the pace and making the game a lot more helter-skelter, you also have to get back. And that can be a real challenge, you know, if if you've got all your guys running all the way down the floor on offense and then all of a sudden the other team thinks that, well, you, you know, because the game is a lot more up and down that they can beat you down at the other end. So I think that's kind of the real challenge with this. You know, it's been encouraging with Russ on offense. With defense, it's been a little more mixed, and I don't think it's all his fault. It's not like, wow, Russell Westbrook is playing terrible defense. But I think overall it's just the style at which he plays is going to take some getting used to because, you know, early on the signs on offense have been good. The signs on defense have been a little more mixed. I think it's just going to take overall a lot more commitment. Maybe this is where having a 10-man rotation will help. Mike D'Antoni has said, you know, maybe if you have 10 guys, these guys can be more committed to running up and down the court with regularity than if, say, it's an eight-man rotation and, you know, everybody's playing kind of extended minutes. But I think ultimately that's going to be kind of the the trade-off that they have to balance is figuring out how do they consistently get back now that they're playing this much more up-tempo style to play to uh, Westbrook strengths. And in addition to the up-tempo style, the kind of helter-skelter type of play that you already touched base on, with that comes an increase in turnovers. One of the things that yep. kind of we were expecting, but, you know, we weren't going to see it until we actually, you know, got to see it live in action with Westbrook was 
how are these up-tempo style rockets going to handle the ball? With Chris Paul and with a bit of a slower pace of play the last couple of years, the Rockets have actually handled the ball pretty well and been yep. in the bottom of the league as far as turnovers are concerned, are, are concerned. And now you've got Russell Westbrook, James Harden, two of the highest usage players in the league alongside guys like LeBron James. And what comes with that package when you are a high usage player, when the ball is pretty much strictly in your hands to run the offense, you're going to turn the ball over quite a bit. And so that's something we're going to have to expect to see from this new look Rockets team is an increase in turnovers, but it's about limiting those turnovers. And like you said, getting back in transition when that does yep. happen. Yep. And it's also the type of turnovers too. Mike D'Antoni touched on this uh, at media day, I believe, or it was one of his interviews. It might've been his, uh, no, it was his podcast with Craig Ackerman that he did in September, but not all turnovers are the same. You know, it's the live ball turnovers that can be really damaging, you know, because of course yeah, those that are the transition defense, you know, kind of plays up that weakness and the Rockets under D'Antoni have never been you know a great transition defense team you just want to kind of mitigate your weakness to where you're mediocre rather than bad I think that's the realistic goal here because you do have a lot of strengths otherwise you know this team overall I mean god you look at their offense and you know I saw this morning like 538 debuted their new metric like before they already had the Rockets as the league's best team now 538's new metric they have the Rockets as by far the league's best team so, I mean, there's a lot of talent. So the point is, you know, you can overcome a lot of these weaknesses as long as you're just mediocre rather than bad. And so I think certainly a transition defense that applies to, and then also the turnovers as well. You're not going to eliminate them altogether, especially the style at which you play. Harden and Westbrook the last couple of years have been the top two turnover players in the NBA. You're not going to take them away. You just want to limit them the best you can, and you also want to limit the type of them. You know, if it comes, you know, downhill going to the bucket – where you almost make you know a big play and then someone gets a deflection you know it's unfortunate but you live with it what you can't deal with is the turnover at midcourt that leads to an easy run out the other way it's the live ball turnovers that are killers and so i think ultimately that's kind of where the the focus is again it's not so much you're going to turn it into a strength but you have enough talent when you have the 2017 the 2018 mvps and russell westbrook and james harden you got eric gordon you got clint capella this is a really really good team so i think as long as you can make those weaknesses mediocre rather than bad, you'll be in pretty good shape. And one more thing to touch base on before we move on to a bit of a rapid fire, everything goes final segment. Russell Westbrook and James Harden, there was a lot of talk of who's going to play off ball, who's going to have the ball in their hands more often. And we've seen that a little bit in the first two games where rather than having Westbrook just sitting in the corner ready to catch and shoot a three, there have been some cutting, some backdoor actions. What do you think about that so far? I think it's worked pretty well. Um, I think that's something that you're going to have to play to Westbrook's strengths because if you stick him in the corner the way you often had with uh, Chris Paul when you had James Harden up top, Westbrook's corner three-point shooting, especially when he's open, it's not quite as much of a weakness as a lot of people think it is, but it's also certainly not a strength. If you want to play to Russell Westbrook, you need to have him cutting. You need to have him doing things away from the ball. And I think it's been really encouraging that he's willing to do it. Um, certainly, James has done it as well. But I think ultimately, what we've heard from Mike D'Antoni, I think he's spot on in terms of whether this partnership works, whether they can win a championship. It comes down to the final five minutes of close games. You know, each of James and Russell, they're going to get minutes without the other throughout the game, which it can be, you know, Russ time, James time. They can trade off who's hot, who's not. But then you're going to have late in games the last five minutes and you're not going to be good enough to win a title without executing in close games the margin just while i think the rockets could be the league's best team it's certainly not by like an overwhelming margin you're going to have to execute especially by the playoffs in these late game settings and the bottom line is late games the tempo tends to slow 
The bottom line is James Harden is just a better half-court player than Russell Westbrook is. He's better as the primary ball handler. That's just the reality. So if you're going to make it work, it's Russell more than James that's going to have to figure out how to do things away from the ball. And, you know, again, while he's not a terrible shooter off the ball, he gets a little too much blame for that. At the same time where he's really at his best and strikes fear into the defense is when he is you know, certainly with the ball, but also without going to the bucket. And we know just how powerful, how explosive he is. And so that's something that we've seen. Again, it's a small sample, but, you know, they've said throughout the offseason that they do it. Well, talking is one thing, action is another. To this point, I think we've seen a few signs. And to this point, the uh, what we're seeing on the floor is matching the rhetoric that we've heard off of it. Now, for this final segment, what we want to go ahead and do is there are a lot of different topics that we can touch base on, but we're going to do them in a bit of a rapid-fire fashion. So, first thing, Ryan Anderson as a stretch five. Pretty good. Uh, he made his first two threes the other night, and I thought that was pretty encouraging. Yeah, R- Ryan, at this point in his NBA career, he's got to be a five. You know, you saw in the 2018 playoffs, that was the only role that he had, and of course, he got burned by Steph Curry on the switches in Game 7 of course. when they rolled him out. But at this point, even 2017, we saw the Rockets using him as a five when Nene got hurt the playoff series against the Spurs. So I think at this point in his NBA career, especially with the Rockets wanting to be as agile as they are, the fours have got to be able to move in space. And so that's P.J. Tucker, that's small ball Daniel House, that's small ball Tabo Cephalosha. I saw D'Antoni mention to Fagan that he basically viewed uh, Cephalosha as a four in this system. So at this point, if those are the types of guys you're looking at at the four Ryan Anderson doesn't fit. He's got to play as a five. So far, I wouldn't say he's been great, but he's been serviceable, and he spreads the floor, and he's active. And as far as a 10th or 11th man off your bench, I'm fine. Okay. Are you concerned by P.J. Tucker's shooting in preseason at all? No. (laughs) Not at all? You think he'll shake it off? Yeah. I mean, I think some of it with P.J. too. You know, keep in mind he had the ankle injury um, mid-August and so didn't really get a lot in the way of – reps between i'd say mid-august and mid-september so i think he's working his way back into shape pj's one of the guys that you know assuming he's healthy and i i haven't seen anything that suggests he's not moving well i think it's a reps issue he has one of the more consistent forms in the league and i think he'll figure it out especially in the regular season where you'll have him a lot more camped in his spots and when he gets those looks in the corners uh you know at some point he's going to age and like anybody you know father time stops for no one but at this point i'm not worried about it okay do Chris Clemens and Ben McLemore have a chance at actually getting meaningful rotation minutes this season? McLemore, yes. Clemens, boy, it's so tough because— It really is. So it, you look at the Rockets' backcourt and Harden, Westbrook, Gordon, Rivers, and you wonder, okay, this guy is five foot nine, and you have this loaded backcourt. How in the world could this work? Yet we have seen and heard, you know, Mike D'Antoni keeps saying there's a chance. I think it was the Thursday game he came in in the first half, right? Yeah. Like, he's gotten real minutes, and I still lean to no on Clemens simply because, you know, the roster spot issue, you can get one extra guy if you make Clemens a two-way, and then maybe during the year, like they did with Gary Clark a season ago, you can convert him to a real contract then. It basically allows you to squeeze in an extra person if you make him a two-way, which, of course, limits his time at the NBA level, which makes it very unlikely that he's in your rotation. So I still think, just based on roster limits and trying to get the most you can the best bang for your buck out of your roster no but at this point you can't rule it out because they keep saying it and they keep doing it you know he's out there i know he didn't shoot that well the other night but you know just putting him out there speaks volumes um mclemore yeah i I think he could play i mean i don't know if he's in the rotation day one we've heard harden rave about him the thing that i didn't realize about ben and i actually think he worked on it this summer he's got a really quick release he's got that Gerald green release and 
By the way, Gerald's getting up there in age too, so I'm not suggesting, again, this isn't something day one, but it could be something where maybe over time Ben McLemore takes some of Gerald Green's minutes. But I think, you know, seeing the athleticism that he has and the fact that he's got that quick release, which is so important for this system, I lean to McLemore being in the rotation at some point. I think especially with the Anthony Bennett situation and now he's gone, I think the odds are pretty good that McLemore makes the team and probably not in the rotation day one, but eventually I think he gets his shot. Now, as far as Eric Gordon starting versus coming off the bench, where do we lean? He started the first couple games, first handful of games, but at least from what I've seen, there have been times where it seems like the bench unit being run alongside Russell Westbrook is in desperate need of some shooting. What was really interesting, um, there was a comment in Japan that Mike D'Antoni did with one of the reporters, and you know, I'm going through Twitter for all of this because you know we haven't seen them in almost two weeks because you know they went to Hawaii before Japan. So you know those of us like me and you, Jack, so there are reporters here in Houston, we don't actually see them now. Hopefully we will this weekend. And of course they have preseason play beginning again uh, next Wednesday at Toyota Center. But in one of these comments to Japan, I saw D'Antoni mention that he his goal was to have one or, or no to have two of Westbrook. Harden and Gordon on the floor at all times and that tells you that if the goal is to have two of those guys out there at once that Gordon is going to be spending a lot of time in that second unit with Russell Westbrook that's the only way that that could work so while I don't think it's a given that um, Gordon would lose his starting job and in fact I think at this point with him being a starter in the preseason I think it's overwhelmingly likely that Gordon's going to be your starting three on Thursday the 24th against the Bucs but over time, number one, I think it'll get pulled fairly quickly for Daniel House and then come back with the bench unit. That's kind of what pairing two of those guys together at all times tells me. And then beyond that, I think it's one of those things over time, maybe not day one, maybe it's a situation like a couple of years ago with P.J. Tucker eventually taking the power forward spot from Ryan Anderson. And you know, as we mentioned, Ryan kind of being a five only at this point. I think it's something where during the year, I don't know when it'll happen. But I suspect that if Daniel House is a good player, the question is if, because he's young, he hasn't proven it that much yet. But assuming Daniel House pans out as they expect him to, then by the playoffs at some point, my guess is that House is the starting three. Now, I know that both of us were very excited by this signing when it was announced, but Tabo Cephalosha, what have you seen out of him so far? What have you enjoyed? Are there any negatives or has it all been great? Uh, it's pretty much been great. You know, I like the fact that he made all three of the shots the other night. Then he had the, the rest game. The thing that I didn't realize about the guy, and, you know, part of it, I guess it's because of his age and injuries. He didn't play that much last year in Utah, just 12 minutes per game. And I guess that's something you got to manage his body. Maybe that's more of an opportunity for the aforementioned um, Ben McLemore to get minutes. We'll have to wait and see. But as far as Tava, what I didn't realize, his wingspan is so long. He's able to contest, like, virtually everything, you know, even just beyond his height. Because, you know, you think, okay, you know, he's a normal mid-sized wing, that type of guy. Well, even relative to the normal mid-sized wings, you compare him to, you know, McLemore or Green, he's got such a longer wingspan. He's also intelligent that he's able to close out on threes and on shooters and in a way that a lot of other guys aren't. So at this point, I'm really encouraged about Tabo, the basketball player. I'm just worried about Tabo, the 35-year-old. That's the big question. You know, he got the rest game off on Thursday. I know it's the preseason, so it's not a big deal. But you factor in, you know, he's got a ton of mileage. They're giving him rest games in the preseason. There's a reason why, even though he can contribute to this level, he only played 12 minutes a game last year in Utah. So, you know, I'm really bullish on Tabo, the basketball player. It's just as the year gets going, you know, how much is he able to give you? Is he truly a rotation caliber player that's going to be there every night or is this going to be something kind of like the wing version of the, the Nene plan in which he's basically a part-time guy to me that's the question now we already had a whole segment on Russell Westbrook but very briefly do you think he is going to be able to work himself out of a shot selection that incorporates volume <laughs> three-point shooting oh boy not entirely I mean it's just 
in this system in particular, I just don't think you can break the system for Russ. That's the reality of it. You know, Mike D'Antoni wants these guys to shoot threes. There was actually one incident the other day where Ryan Anderson did not take a three, and it kind of bogged down a possession. That stuck out at me because, of course, that's something when Ryan lost his confidence a couple of years ago. You know, that's part of why he kind of fell out of favor is because it's not just that he wasn't shooting that well, it's that he wouldn't shoot at all. That's kind of the enemy of everything under Mike D'Antoni. So I don't know if he'll take it out altogether. I think the Rockets will just live with it and hope that eventually, you know, he becomes the shooter. He did shoot 34% on threes after the All-Star break last year. So I think they'll just have to live with it. I think it's just one of those things that you try and moderate. You can't take it out altogether. You just have to hope that, you know, once the season starts, you have six or seven of those rather than uh, 11. You know, something on that same front, and I want to get your take on this. Immediately after the Russell Westbrook trade, I started, you know, looking up stats on him, kind of digging in deeper, trying to get a better better understanding of Russell Westbrook, the player. And something that I found that I can't remember exactly if the sample size was large enough to be verifiable, but Russell Westbrook, I believe, shoots around 36% from behind the arc in the first six minutes of a Ooh, game. Interesting. And so something like that kind of, I looked at it and I thought, you know what? Russell Westbrook is one of those guys that the moment he laces him up and steps on the court, he is going 110% for every second that he's on the court until he hits the bench. And then you sub him back in, Good sure point. thing. I mean, he's he's Good sweaty point. within the first minute of a game. So does somebody with such a high motor like that, is that something that you think maybe impacts his three-point shooting as the game progresses more so than a regular player? It could. I mean, that's a good theory. I never thought about it. But yeah, with his motor and maybe it benefits him this year being with James Harden, his usage being down a smidge, maybe that's something that plays to his benefit. I think overall, though, it's just going to come down to whether Russell has the self-awareness. There's a lot of reasons to think on paper that in Oklahoma City, he had to take a lot of bad shots because there weren't really, especially after Kevin Durant left, there just weren't really that many other um, creative playmakers. Now, this past year, Paul George developed into that. And I actually thought Westbrook did a pretty good job of kind of deferring to him more and more as the year moved along but I think here in Houston you know it's just going to be whether he has the self-awareness I don't think D'Antoni is going to try and turn that off and make him different than the rest of the team no he wants them to shoot he doesn't want them to be timid so I think it's just going to be Westbrook having the self-awareness to play to his strengths I think it'd be a little bit difficult because you know James Harden is so good and he's developed so much as a shooter James does not get near enough credit for just how good he is at shooting the ball you know, you don't think of him you know, like a Clay Thompson, like a Steph Curry. I'm not saying he's quite to that level, but he's up there in terms of the best NBA shooters. I think there was an ESPN article a couple of days ago that had him uh, top five in the league. I think that's justified, especially when you consider the difficulty of some of the shots that James takes. And so I think, if, you know, if you're in that system, you see James doing these incredible things. And, you know, James did have the one cold game on Thursday. He was like one of eight from three. Before that, you know, James, God, he is an MVP for him. Like, Going into Thursday, he was averaging more than a point per minute, like 27 a game and 10 assists in 25 minutes, which is just stunning. And I think if you're Russell Westbrook and you're watching, you know, your buddy, another guard doing those things, it can become easy to fall into the trap of trying to play the same way and do it exactly how James is doing. And it looks fun. But the reality is that Russell has a different skill set. As the game moved along Thursday in particular, as I mentioned earlier, I think he got a lot better at attacking the rim. And so I think overall, you're just going to be depending on Russ. I don't think you're going to see Mike D'Antoni weigh in heavily and get him not to do any of that. I think it's just going to come down to whether Russ has the self-awareness to realize that, hey, you know, maybe I'm not as bad as my critics say I am with those shots, but I'm also not good. And uh, at least into a James Harden level. And where I really am good is at attacking the rim. And so hopefully he has the self-awareness to do that. I think that's the most reasonable way that uh, if you're the Rockets and Mike D'Antoni, that you get the best out of him. And one of the, and this kind of touches base on this same area, is one of my I guess, concerns and issues in the past with James Harden was his leadership. But do you think James has has grown enough to be able to sit with Russ and say, hey, 
if it, it's just not working. You know, if you're jacking up threes, it's not working. We need you to stick to what you are good at. Do you think James has grown enough as a player, as a leader, to be able to sit down and have that discussion with one of his best friends, if needed, if it comes to that point? If Russ is jacking up six, seven threes a game, <laughs> yeah. shooting 20%, does James have it in him to say, this is not working, we need you to change? Possibly. It, it's interesting with them because they're friends, and so that's a completely different dynamic. But one thing I have noticed just on a personal level early in camp, James Harden is so vocal. You know, in the training camps that we got to go see that first weekend after media day before they left for Hawaii and Japan, James was one of the loudest guys other than Tyson Chandler on the floor. And even compared to two or three years ago, he wasn't that guy. And so I think it's just something that kind of comes with time. Now he's in his 30s. He's growing into that. Will he be able to do that with Russell? I'm not sure. But I think it's just something it comes with time, and he seems to be taking more ownership. And perhaps it could. You know, one thing that's interesting with this whole China controversy, and, you know, everybody saw the awkward incident, which the CNN reporter we referenced earlier was kind of shut down in her question to James and Russell about it, about whether it would silence them uh, in terms of speaking out in the future. Well, one thing that we've seen in that setting and a lot of others, it's been James is the one before Ross to want to speak. And the reason that's interesting is because historically, Ross is the much more aggressive and open one with the media. So whatever you've seen, be it about basketball topics or about not basketball, when you see the two of them together on that stage, I've seen a lot of James Harden taking ownership. He's the guy to first answer the question, and maybe that's because it's his team. Maybe it's because Russell is new and he's trying to protect him. I don't know. But I've just seen a lot of little things that shows you that James is a little more comfortable in his own skin speaking out than he has in the past, even next to Russell. And, you know, again, it's just a little anecdotal thing. I don't know if it'll transfer to basketball, but there's just been a few indicators the last couple of weeks that James just seems to be a little more traditional in terms of of his leadership style than what we've seen from him in the past. And I think you can definitely hope that maybe that translates to the basketball. It's just always going to be a little bit of a sensitive dynamic because of how close they are uh, as friends. Okay. And on this Friday, October 11th, that's going to be where we're going to go ahead and cut things off. Now, obviously everybody here is very familiar with Ben, but Ben, is there anything you'd like to plug really quick? <laughs> no, just uh, normal Twitter feed, uh, Ben DuBose, of course, show Locked on Rockets and, uh, don't forget to check out the Rockets Wire, uh, rocketswire.usatoday.com, which is where I am now the editor of Rockets coverage. And it's been a busy week, a lot busier than I would expect in the preseason because of uh, Gerald Morey's tweets. So hopefully now that uh, Gerald Morey has logged off of Twitter for a while, probably wisely. Um, Definitely wisely. Yeah, so hopefully it will be a little more calmer and be able to uh, enjoy this Astros playoff run a little bit more. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ben, our special correspondent for joining the show. We look forward to having you on a weekly basis. Absolutely. Glad to be here, Jackson. From Ben and I both, thank you for tuning in. If you want more content before the next show, social media is where it's all happening. I'm on there at JT Gatlin. Ben is on there at Ben DuBose. And the show is on there at Locked on Rockets. Past that, there's Facebook located at facebook.com slash Locked on Rockets. The website, LockedOnRockets.com. And of course, an email address, LockedOnRockets at Gmail. All of these are different avenues to consume content about the Rockets or ask me and Ben questions about the team, make suggestions for the show, place advertising inquiries, and generally just do anything that we can do to imp improve the experience for you, the listener. Beyond that, if you'd be kind enough to subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. That's how you get the benefit of episodes straight to your inbox before it's published to the previously mentioned social media channels, and we get the benefit of looking attractive to potential advertisers and keeping the business model rolling as the most regular podcast covering your Houston Rockets. 
For this Friday, October 11th, this is where we break. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to have you back again soon right here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball.